Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And here we are. Welcome back for another edition of Let's Hear It. You've made it. You've found us. It downloaded correctly. And here we are, your little moment of Zen sanity in the midst of a very rapidly changing universe, it seems. Uh, Mr. Brown, it's good to see you today, hear you today. How are you? Welcome into Let's Hear It. I'm uh, I'm hanging in there. How about yourself, Kirk? I think that's what we get to say these days, isn't it? We're hanging in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's hard. These are, are very difficult days. And... Uh, it's funny, I was thinking the other day that this episode, the interview was recorded <laughs> before everything, right. before before the pandemic hit the way we understand it now, before the murder of George Floyd helped remind us about the murders of so many other African Americans at the hands of police and has helped us begin what I hope is a really productive and transformative conversation about racism, anti-racism, and the effect of police violence, particularly against people of color. I don't know. It was early February. I was at the Frank conference, and uh, and Thaler Picar and I sat down and talked about storytelling. Mm. It, it felt like a... Uh, when going back to listen to this conversation, almost felt like another universe. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I, I don't know. I, I hope it's still relevant. <laughs> oh, I think it's very relevant. And there's a lot to talk about with this. And, you know, Thaler, so um, generous to, again, to give us time to talk with you. And by the way, you can find her practice at uh, thalerpicard.com. So if you want to go there and learn more about her and her practice. But I have to say, thinking, you know, that people probably know who've been listening to us now that we don't do these in sequence necessarily. You go out in your travels. Every now and then I manage to raise my hand to do something, but we kind of collect this catalog of stories and interviews and then talk about them and post them from time to time. This was 90 days ago. It, I agree. It feels like you guys are in a different, I don't even know what, century, a different world, a different universe. It's like it's like we've all stepped through this little um, you know, strange looking glass moment and yet I think that there's so much in here that's completely relevant for what we're all kind of going through and what we're wrestling with. And, and, and frankly, plus two, there's a little, I think, freshness in it because of the stuff you guys are able to talk about without maybe the weight of maybe what some of us are feeling yeah. these days, which yeah. is the grief and just the ongoing sensibility of like, oh my gosh. Um, do you kind of feel that in retrospect? And we can talk more about this afterwards, but but do you have that feeling a little bit or how would you characterize that? I, I do. And I just hope that when folks listen, that they listen with that understanding that this is, I don't know, there was, it was a simpler, time, I don't know, a simpler time back then. But also, we, I don't want to get, this is not an episode about uh, processing the George Floyd murder and the, and how we see the world now and, and for which I have some some measure of optimism. Uh, and there was this amazing piece by Angela Glover Blackwell mm-hmm. that uh, was published today, which is the w- a week before this episode goes out. What is today? The June 17th. <laughs> June, 2020, June 17th. just to put that marker in there. I'm, I'm taking a whole lot of meaning from what's going on right now. And so this conversation occurs in, <laughs> in the absence of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but Thaler and I... We talk about storytelling. We talk about her work, and I learned a lot from her about how to listen. So I would say that for folks listening to this, um, I hope that this is useful. And then you know we can chat about it when it's over. Taylor Picard, and let's hear it. Welcome to Let's Hear It. This week, I have the what would I call it? the unmitigated pleasure of sitting down with Taylor Picard, 
who is, you're just a legend in this business. <laughs> you're a storyteller, a writer, and what we I just found out that you're a producer on Air America uh, and a million other things. And we are here in the green room at Frank underneath the Hippodrome. So there's buzzing and hissing and, and noises, but the most important sounds that we will be hearing are is your voice. Thank you, Thaler, for being willing to sit down and chat with us. Thank you, Eric. This is fun already. <laughs> well, that's good. I, um, I always say this. I say this to every, almost every guest. I don't know where to start because I never know where to start because people are so interesting. But I would like to actually start to ask you a whole bunch of questions that I don't know the answers to, which is, can you just tell me about this career of yours? <laughs> you have done so many interesting things. I went to college at 16 to study communications. I then became a political organizer and I got a real Sololinsky training in listening to communities and then brought that to public affairs work. And I was the first political organizer for NARAL in New Jersey. I then was the public affairs director for a large health and social service agency in New Jersey. Then I worked for the Children's Health Fund, and I had what I call my RFK Tour of America in East Palo Alto, and a lot of time spent in Appalachia, and a lot of time in migrant camps in Florida and on the border in New Mexico. And then I started my own firm, and it's 15 years. No kidding. You're a, an amazingly prolific writer, and in particular, you have spent it seems the better part of the last decade examining Atlantic philanthropies. Is that a fair statement? I would say that you've been writing on Atlantic philanthropies and that examination. I've been listening. Uh, I have gathered 178 oral histories for Atlantic philanthropies over five and a half years, six countries, four continents, and those are all archived at Cornell and will be available to the public later this year. It's the largest oral history project ever done in philanthropy, and it was incredible. And along the way, I've worked with other foundations as well. I helped the Clinton Foundation set up their oral history program. And that all started at Atlantic. Previous to the oral histories, I was doing a Stories of Impact project. They brought me in and asked for tangible, repeatable stories that people could hold and repeat about this complex work they were doing all over the world. So I went to South Africa and to Vietnam, and I gathered those stories. And during some of that gathering, the staff at Atlantic said, oh my God, we're hearing things that we never heard before. I've never heard this story. Incredible stories of, of impact. At that same time, I was hearing Atlantic Communications Department talk about, we have to figure out the legacy. We have to figure out the legacy. And one day I blurted out, you don't get to decide the legacy. <laughs> it's the people who worked here and the people who worked with the foundation. You can listen in on it. You can give people space to reflect on it and you can amplify it and you can learn a lot from it. And the Oral History Project was born. How many? interviews did you say you did? 178. But who's counting? Did you know you were going to end up doing 178 interviews? No. A year into the project, they were so happy with it that they doubled the size of it. And what Atlantic decided was not only will we interview the staff members who are exiting, but we will interview complimentary interviews. They get to choose someone. So sometimes it was a grantee. Sometimes it was a colleague in the philanthropic world and another analogous foundation that worked closely. Sometimes it was a vendor, depending on where the person worked. I interviewed the cook at the office in Vietnam. Whoa. How was that? Fantastic. What did you talk about? We talked about how she contributed, how she worked with the people there. The interviews overall gave the interviewees a chance to reflect on the past with Atlantic, what their experiences were, what they themselves contributed to the foundation, what they were leaving behind, and what they were taking with them, and how they would impact the future of philanthropy, if that's the career they were going into, or what they would take from this extraordinary experience and bring to their next job. 
So it enabled this connection of the past and the present and the future, which is very much what my firm does, is we help organizations find that through line because the best stories about the future are ones that are firmly rooted in the past and the present. How would you approach an interview? And maybe it's each one you approach differently, but how do you think about interviewing somebody, getting their story? Yesterday, you gave a fabulous session on listening. So I know you're good at listening, but can you just talk us through how you think about doing any old interview, and then maybe we can get into some specific ones. Well, for sure, we'll get into some specific ones. This is getting very meta because I want you to answer this question after you've (laughs) asked me. (laughs) Fine. A more classic oral history interview requires a lot of research. And mostly that's because you don't want to waste the person's time and you don't want to miss opportunities. So if they say something that you want to ask more about or you want to be able to pivot to a real moment in institutional history or in the larger context. So there's actually a lot of research that goes into a big oral history collection. For an individual interview, you asked the open-ended question and you said, I believe you give people space to go somewhere. I think that was something I heard you say on an earlier episode of the podcast. I don't remember anything. So it's, <laughs> but some, some folks will come back to me and say, oh, and you said in, the, in that one episode, you said that very interesting thing. And I, I take, thank you. I just don't remember. Listening for emotion is really important. And sometimes it's in tone. Sometimes it's in words that people use, but picking up on that emotion and bringing that out, trying to find the narrative threads, the discourse analysis as it's actually ongoing and thinking about how these things come together, looking at pronoun use, looking at past, present, and future and what they're putting in the past and what they might be putting in the future. What do you mean about looking at pronoun use? Do people talk about we or I? Uh, They or us? Interesting. So whether they owned the institution and felt like they belonged to it or felt separated from it. And in a personal conversation, sometimes that could be about their family. (laughs) (laughs) Them? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Over there. Over there, those people. I don't know about you. When I do research or have a lot of conversations for a while, it takes me a while to figure out what I think I'm hearing or what I'm learning. I feel like almost sometimes I'm a child who's born into a bilingual family and they don't start talking till they're six because their brains are processing what they're hearing and they are trying to channel it into something useful. Can you talk a little bit about your own processing activities, taking in all these amazing stories and trying to make sense of them or what you're learning from them? How does that affect you? I did one stretch of Atlantic interviewing where I went to Ireland for 10 days, to the South, to the Republic of Ireland, then to the North of Ireland for a week, then to the UK, and then back to Dublin. I heard Irish lilt for weeks after that. (laughs) I was dreaming in Irish. You have to sit with it. You have to let it emerge. You have to be incredibly careful when you're doing that many interviews that you don't jump into the thread that's immediately in front of you because there's a larger context. There's an immediate context and there's also a larger context. And again, it's past, present, and future. I think what I try to do is just be completely present in each and every one and think of each and every one as a standalone. You go home at the end of the day or you sit down at the end of the month and you've just heard all of these interesting stories. What does that do to you? What do you take away from it? And how do you then apply that into your work? I'm trying to think if it makes me require more of other conversationalists, probably my husband but he's a good storyteller. (laughs) You get better at it. The more you listen to people, the more you learn. Everybody's got something to say. Everybody loves something and everybody is loved by somebody and everybody hates something. And frankly, everybody's hated by somebody. Everybody finds meaning somewhere in their lives. The world's a crazy place and filled with paradox and how people navigate that is fascinating to me. 
people asked me recently, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And I said, yes. <laughs> I get energy from people, but I do need a lot of time alone to synthesize it and put it all together. What did you learn about Atlantic philanthropies from having 170-something quest uh, interviews with their brethren, sistren, and, and everyone else in between? Incredible organization, as you know, risk-taking. I found the work that they were doing to work sometimes from the inside and the outside, especially in political and, and advocacy work, really powerful and very, very important. I'm a communicator, not a philanthropist, not working to give money away. So I was really interested in how an organization that was anonymous then comes out and starts speaking. I've also worked with Wellspring for well over a decade, and I actually have a for-profit client that did so much work for Google under NDA that they had a very similar instance where none of their staff members were speaking. And so working with organizations that are starting at less than zero is fascinating. My creative partner and I say we always want to write a book saying, you know, if we tell you, we'll have to kill you, <laughs> how to rise above anonymity. So that was really interesting to see what effects that has on an organization to go from zero to full on. You probably know more about Atlantic philanthropies than almost anybody else on the planet. Maybe Chuck knows more, but Chuck Feeney. Atlantic also had an incredible number of people who came from the arts. I don't know if anyone knows this, who were actors and writers and musicians, playwrights. And the innovation that comes from an artistic mindset was a perfect match in the organization. That's interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a just a little while with Thaler Picar and uh, yeah, can continue this great conversation. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest this time is Thaler Picar. And we're having this amazing conversation about these stories that you have collected from Atlantic Philanthropies and its colleagues. But you, this is, I'm guessing, a tip of the iceberg in, in the storytelling, gathering, and telling that you do. Can you talk just some about your practice, what, what you work on in general? We provide extensive, comprehensive communication counsel in helping people figure out what to say and how to say it better. We're best known for our ability to find stories. And we do a lot of programs in how to find stories. I have a program that I've delivered around the world on narrative inquiry and how do you actually create a narrative organization where story is used for identity, but it's also used for engagement and it's used for innovation. How do you make the implicit explicit? How do you do knowledge sharing through story? And that's how I came to story as a straightforward public affairs communicator, I was very good at getting front page of Time Magazine, the front page of the New York Times Magazine. I got clients on Oprah. I got clients in Oprah Magazine. I was great. And I thought that's what you did in PR. And one day my boss introduced me to someone, a, a client, and said, oh, this is Thaler. She knows how to get feature articles. <laughs> I thought, isn't that what we all do? And I looked around and realized, no, that other people were great at getting 50 journalists to show up for a press conference. And I sucked at that. <laughs> but I was really good at going into an organization and spending a day talking to people and finding the small story that exemplified the big narrative they were trying to put out into the world. So we still do a lot of that. We've coached main stage TED Talker, helped write the speech and helped in the delivery of it. We do a lot of work with 
institutions on connecting the past, present, and future. So you're not pushing a change story at someone, but you're pulling them into a story of continuity. It's funny. As human beings, we had to be good at storytelling because that was the way we kept from getting eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. Don't go there. That's where the danger is. And stories are the things that we remember. It's all that other jazz. So as people generally outside the office, we're good at storytelling. I mean, it's why we're still alive. In the office, working for your organization, people have a difficult time telling stories. In my observation, they, they, they just do. Do you agree with that? And if so, how do you help people kind of unlock the stuff that's already there inside us that we have a tendency to tamp down or lock shut once we get, you know, you put on a nice pants? Those are lovely pants that you're wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Jeans for the record. We're already doing it. We need to be more intentional about it and we need to be more invitational about it. So I don't like the word storytelling. I talk about story sharing because the idea is any story I tell you or you tell me, it's going to spark one in my mind. Story is an emergent form of communication. So let's use it for its incredible power. Let's use it to connect with people and let's use it to move movements, let alone conversations forward. So we have a process that helps people little by little figure out, dip into it, recognize that they are telling stories, that it's not about creativity, it's about connectivity. It's so interesting that People, they, they, they connect with stories and they remember them. And yet, uh, like I said, you know, we struggle with the sense that stories are light or that they're not important. You no know, child, you put them to bed, they go, daddy, tell me some statistics. But they're just, they're considered not substantive. And that's crazy. But how do you help organizations, particularly like scientists and mathy people, get beyond that? A story is a structure and it's a container for information. And it's a way to put a lot of information into a small space. It's a way to put data into a space. It's a way to put morals and values. It's a way to say things you wouldn't say any other way. So demonstrating that. And oftentimes it's getting people to realize how they themselves react to story first. And then you pull, again, it's pulling them in. You were at the session yesterday on listening. Yes. I had people towards the end of the session share a story with each other. I was amazed that the communicators in the room after that session was over were saying, oh my God, I feel so connected to this person. (laughs) God, I learned so much. Oh my God, I now have... 13 follow-up questions, or I want to know more. I learned so much in this one conversation. These are people who are working all the time talking about the power of story, but to your point, themselves aren't relishing in it. Cobbler's kids got no shoes. Years ago, I did a story session at a big fundraising conference and had two people pair off and share a story. And in the back of the room, after the first exercise, Some guy raised his hand and said, I now know this woman better than I know my own wife, and I've been married for 20 years. (laughs) So you led this terrific session on listening yesterday, and I would love it if you would just walk our listeners through some of the principles that you taught. And and let's send them home today with a little bit of homework principles of listening. Yeah, just talk, talk me through the just talk me through the session because it was great. I really, really got a lot out of it. To remember now, Eric, <laughs> we talked about what gets in the way of listening. How much listening do you yourselves get every single day? How much quality listening do you receive? And I think that that's important because when you realize you're not getting it, you might be more likely to give it. And I was struck. I really expected the answer when I said, how much quality listening do you get? And people said, oh, maybe 10 minutes a week. And I said, how much do you give? I thought that even with the great humility in the room, people would say, oh, two hours, seven hours. And people said, oh, about 10 minutes. I was floored. 
And by that, you mean basically how much listening do you get? Do you feel truly heard by someone with whom you are attempting to communicate? And the answer was, hell no, we don't feel heard. And then people admitted that they're not listening either. These communication lines have been severed. And you led us through some exercises that were, I think, from my mind, designed to reignite the joy of listening and hearing because it was fun. Tell me about the first exercise. I was in it. We did the improv. Oh, we did a yes and exercise. Right. Thank you. Uh, I, like you, went to improv much later in my life. Most of the students in my class, their Facebook groups were their high school classes that they were connected. (laughs) (laughs) But I was eager to make that kind of connection with people. And the basic organizing principle behind improv is the yes and, to be additive, to build on what your partner is saying. And in a listening content, it's about actually thinking that what they are saying is brand new. It's emergent. You're hearing it for the very first time. It's rich and it's true. It's true. And you cannot say no to it. You can't push it aside. You can't think ahead. So it's a fantastic listening exercise, I I feel. It was great. And here's why it was so powerful to me. So you told us to, you just have a conversation and the listener says yes and adds to the thing. And then the other person says yes and adds the thing. We had two, we were either charged with forming a rock band or making a documentary film. And so someone would say, let's make a documentary film about bumblebees. And the other person would say, yes, and we'll follow the bumblebees around and go visit them in their natural habitat. Yes, and we'll talk to the beekeeper. Yes, and we'll taste the honey. Yeah, and so you get that. Yes, and we'll get those little teeny cameras and put them on the bumblebees' heads. Right. Yes, and we'll do sound effects with our mouths. Go zzz. So the thing about it that was so much fun is that, and we're experiencing this right now, is that it's fun. People were giggling and laughing and engaging, and they were enjoying themselves. And many conversations, I think, that we have in life. You got to sit there, you got to listen to a boring speech, and then you're thinking about what you're having for lunch, or maybe thinking about the fabulous comment that you're going to make, and then you're going to go back to what it was you were doing. And that building on each other is joyful, and people just don't do it enough. And it requires you to listen, but it also requires you to be generous. I, I just thought that was really fun. And I do improv, and yet you don't always think about it in other settings. So let's say you're taking an oral history. You can't be yes-anding people because it's not your interview. Or do you in in some way? In some way, you very much yes-and. I hadn't thought about that because it's about the other person. It's a co-creation in some sense, but you really want the subject of the interview to lead the way. You want to yes-and them because who knows if they're going to connect A to D to F to Z And it's not for you to assume that there's a linear process that you think you know how all of these things connect. The session yesterday has probably an an untidy name, but I call it listening for emergence beyond understanding. It's not just to say, oh yeah, I understand you. It's to say, whoa, that's entirely new. I learned something I never knew before. I let you emerge. I let you say whatever you wanted to say. In your 178 interviews, were there one or two that stood out for that very thing, that they went in some emergent direction that you just were excited about? I got to interview a high school friend of Chuck Feeney's and went to his house in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And that was a blast. I mean, hearing stories about Chuck from high school and pranks that these guys used to pull was a blast. And that part of Chuck Feeney, who later became Atlantic Philanthropies, that's all part of that that timeline and connecting the through line as well. That was a lot of fun. There were a lot of interviews where people were 
angry and hurt. And I can say this, they're all in the archive and all available. Atlantic shut down or sunsetted over a long course. And we have to remember they closed down offices in regions where there wasn't a philanthropic sector. The likelihood of people getting analogous jobs was pretty much nil. So there was a lot of fear. And the first people who left were especially fearful because they were the first. There was They hadn't seen anyone leave and land anywhere yet. In fact, my first crew that I had for some time said, is there always going to be crying? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. And then later on, there was a lot of crying. It it was interesting, the, the valley that it went through. People cried a lot at the end again, but for different reasons. And it was interesting also to work with a video crew. These interviews were videotaped as well as oral, as well as having a written transcript that's in the archive. And part of why video works so well is I think it'll last longer as an archival material. You also get to see the person and get the full context of their body language as they're saying what they're saying, as opposed to just reading the written transcript. Researchers can go in and look at any of the three available mediums. Um, in just a couple of minutes that we have left, this this idea of a foundation actually sharing what it has learned is sort of kind of newish. Foundations have a tendency to share what they did great or what they think they did great. It's hard for folks to be candid and to really express what they've learned. How do you think people will be able to use this archive? to get a better understanding about how to either do philanthropy or work in a particular region or think about solving great big problems. So I want to be clear that I believe there are 55,000 boxes of information. (laughs) These are big boxes in the archive. And I wound up delivering a three terabyte drive. Good Lord. One very small piece of a vast archive of what Atlantic's delivering to the world. But what I'd like to think the oral histories did, what I know it did, was it humanized the story and it complicated it in the best way that a story can be complicated because it brought in the people telling the stories themselves about what the work was and what what it's about. I would love to see more foundations gather the stories of what they're doing and not just sunsetting foundations, foundations that are there right now. You can learn a lot by reading the transcripts, by following the through line, by taking the stories. Show a few to your board and let your board reflect on how are they connecting the threads in what they're hearing. Give people voice in what they're doing. Give people space to reflect on it. And reflection is a contagion. The more people reflect, the more people reflect. And Foundations are learning organizations so much more of this kind of gathering and sharing, especially when we're in a country where you might know the statistic, it's something like 86% of Americans don't know the difference between a nonprofit and a foundation. It wouldn't surprise me. And 12% of foundations don't know the difference between a nonprofit and foundation. No, just kidding. Are these materials up and ready now or are they on their way? The archive is open. I do not think the oral histories are available. I went into the archive page and tried to do the research to see if I could find them, but they will be available later this year. Well, it's such a cool project. I can't wait to start digging through it myself because I find this stuff really interesting. But I I think you're right that organizations of all kinds have a lot to learn from these kinds of stories. And so thank you for that. Thanks for doing it. And I can't wait to see it. How do, and just to, as we go out, just how do people get in touch with you? Give us a little bit of, uh, you know, the skinny on Taylor Picar and your empire. My eponymous empire. Your eponymous empire. It's yes. thalerpicar.com. That's T H A L E R P E K A R. There's a Facebook page that we post a lot about story and communication and our work. We just made two documentaries about the National Environmental Policy Act. You can reach those off of the Facebook page or on the website. I'm on Twitter. I'm not great at it, but 
I'm on Twitter. Um, and you could just call me and talk to me. Can I go out by asking you a question? Go, go right ahead. So why did you start improv at this point in your life, Eric? I've already covered the, that on this podcast, but finally so that someone would agree with me. And I just defied myself. I should have asked how. How is a better story elicitation question? How what? <laughs> How did you come to oh, doing improv? My, my uh, good friend and, and bosom companion, Daniel Silverman, who works at Irvine, and we've been pals for many years. And now he's gotten two shout outs and two shows in a row, I think. He and I decided to do it together. He also has a theater background, but he kind of felt like it was right. He was a little rusty or wanted to just do something fun and creative that uses a different part of the brain. So we decided to do it as a, as a team and we're still at it. We just finished, we're in our 401 class and uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll join a, an improv team once we graduate and yeah, we'll see. It's just, again, this is the way it's, you use a part of your brain that goes spongy, stale and crusty you re-enliven it. And there's no lines to forget. That's the other part I really like about improv. But thank you for asking that question. It's uh, it's rude of you to ask the interviewer. No, it's <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, Thaler Picar, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and your great work. This has just been delightful. Yes, and thank you, <laughs> And we're back. So I know this episode is not in particular about this moment that we're in with the murder of George Floyd and, you know, all of the rightful and righteous protests that's been happening around the country in light of that. But there's no way, at least for me, to listen to this again without having that be the lens through which you're kind of hearing everything. And I've got some thoughts about it, but... How do you draw the path, or did you, as you were listening to this time we find ourselves in, with this conversation that you were having about with 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 Thaler? Because there were there were a bunch of ideas that came to mind for me of of things I wish that foundations were doing like right now, literally in this moment, building off of what she had the chance to do with her oral history projects um, that could actually maybe even contribute to this moment that we're in. But but what do you make of that? Do you have any thoughts about? Yeah. Well, I mean, for starters, I have to give her just such credit for the oral history work that she has done. I mean, 170-something interviews with Atlantic Philanthropy colleagues and grantees and staff people. It's it's an extraordinary accomplishment. And what she says is she, she doesn't teach storytelling. She teaches story sharing. Mm. And I do think that at this at this moment, of course, telling your story has uh, incredible power. And it is also really important that we capture this moment so that we better understand how to process it in the future. Yeah. So I think this notion of story sharing becomes quite important. I mean, as, as Thaler says, you use stories to say things that you wouldn't say any other way. And pictures are great. Writing in more, I don't know, traditional way of you know sitting down and writing something out is fabulous. And then capturing the story and the voice and in, in many instances, the, the images of how a person communicates feels like an amazing kind of material that we have right now that we should all be thinking about. How are we capturing these stories? How are we sharing these stories? Uh, how are we using stories to say things that we wouldn't say any other way? So I, that's how I listened to that conversation. Well, I don't know. What were your thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, and, it, and it's funny because when I first heard this, I was really thinking about it through the lens of philanthropy and what an extraordinary thing it was that Atlantic philanthropies decided to do this and then how inclusively they did it, you know, that she went out and talked to the cook in Vietnam, you know, and I loved your right. kind of conversation about that and just, just the depth and breadth of people that participated and also um, the perspective. I'd never had that thought before when a foundation is spending down, how many people get affected by that decision? Because for them, it's a job, right? For them, it's, it's, it's so there's- It's a livelihood. It's, it's, yeah, it's a career. That, and that just really struck me. But then- in addition, even at the time when you first did this, I had the overlay of, and we're in the era of fake news. And and this is such a powerful way seemingly to actually yeah. organize without a slant information, right? right? Assemble these stories just so you have the narrative that presents itself from the people that actually drove these experiences. 
you just do that piece. But then obviously, finally, the piece around what we've been seeing most recently, I I couldn't help but wish that we had an army of trained Thalers out there in the streets every day in the midst, you know, of all of these yeah. conversations and protests going on. Because, um, I, you know, I'd say for me, it's part of the grief of this time is just this fundamental feeling of like, <laughs> where's the progress? How is it possible, you know, that things like this are going on? And, um, and just to, uh, and just to hear first person from people in the streets sharing their experience and being able to document that real time, it just, it just felt to me like that could be such a powerful thing. What do you think about that? Oh, I totally agree. If you're at a foundation, I think you ought to, if you can, encourage your grantees to get out there and, and, and capture these stories and to share them, fund them to do it, please. Don't ask them to do it with <laughs> the project money they're receiving. Right. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're at a nonprofit and you're doing communications work, it is not expensive. To get out there with a, I mean, heck, you can turn out. Our first uh, podcast was <laughs> was recorded on an iPhone, um, but to to get out there and capture these stories and to, uh, we're using them to mark time. Of course, we're also using to capture uh, the experience and the, the kind of the essence of what this moment means to us, and we're also using it. I hope to begin to paint that picture for what the future can look like, what society in which people feel that they belong can look like. And Thaler has done this so remarkably well. And I would also encourage folks to just kind of think about how she has approached these interviews, which is this understanding about really hearing people and that the the conversations are about listening carefully. We got into the fun jag about improv and yes, yes and, <laughs> but, but to have that building that that building nature of the conversation with your subjects with the people whose voices you want to capture and frankly the people that we really want to learn from you know these these interviews i people ask me about this this podcast character is like how is this like oh my god it's a huge pain in the butt uh, and it takes a lot of work but it's how i learn it's it's just how I learn. And because I'm an extrovert and I have to talk in order to learn, I sit there in my office and stare at the walls and I don't learn anything. So I think that it is also a way to extend by proxy learning for other people so that they can also have the opportunity to process the perceptions and stories and inclinations of people who they don't otherwise get to meet. I mean, that's also why we kind of did this is so that we can have conversations and, and share the perspectives of people who we would not otherwise, and I think many of the listeners would not otherwise have an opportunity to hear from, at least not in this way. Right. Well, and it's it's been interesting to see some of the themes that we've been, you know, uh, that you've been surfacing through the conversations, the interviews you've been doing, see some of those themes resonate in the kind of public protest that's happening now. But, you know, and, and you did it again in this interview, Eric, it's the famous Eric Brown 20 minute moment. Yo, 20 minutes. 20 moment. minutes in. It's the 20 minute moment. You gotta wait for 20 Oh, it's so good blah, though. Blah. No, it's so good. To get to the it's blah. organic and it's like you have to earn it. You have to build to get there. And so the 20 minute moment <laughs> in this one is you talk about this notion of listening and walking through the principles of listening. And I'm just jumping out of my chair. This was on the first listen. And then when I listened again, that I hope you weren't driving. I wasn't. I was. I was safely in Scott's, yeah, taking notes carefully, which is which is as you know how I do it. But um, but she talks about uh, you can't listen well if you haven't been listened to, and how much quality listening do people receive? And when oh, she's yeah. done that thing about you know interviewing and serving people, like assuming that people would say, oh, maybe I get listened to maybe two hours a week. And people say, no, it's more like 10 minutes per week they get listened to. And watching these protests just explode with people finally saying, look, if this is the only way we can be heard, we're going to get heard this way. But I was thinking about this process of systematic listening and going through communities and hearing real time and listening intentionally and listening deeply it's such something that we don't receive. And it almost makes me feel about, you know, it's the classic, like you're at the table around the holidays and the verbosity starts going off about politics, this uh, or the other thing. And how often it feels like in those moments that people are just kind of 
venting because they don't have any other forum in which to be heard, right? And and yeah. and so instead of communicating, we're all just kind of venting. But it just it just felt like that listening part, that systematic reaching out and and asking people to share their stories. There could be something deeply healing in that too. I mean, what do you think about that? I was th- that part of it relative to this moment we're in just was like a lightning bolt for me uh, around all of this. Well, uh, I uh, I don't know where to begin, but um, <laughs> this is your fault. I would say, this is your fault. <laughs> The listening and obviously the the companion piece to that is the seeing. And mm. I would I just keep encouraging people if they listen to no other episode, listen to Donny Sandoval. Totally, yeah. Way back in I don't know when it was in the fall yeah. of nineteen, we talked to her and and she talked about how people who don't have permanent housing on the street feel like they are not seen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that this extends clearly beyond people who don't have homes into all corners of our society. This is. This is what we're seeing right now, but it's also uh, an opportunity to try and see people who we don't agree with, and and I'm not saying that you have to like people. I'm not saying that we we ever want to agree with people with whom we have a, a fundamental difference that we that is will be very difficult to overcome. But the the seeing part I think helps us all understand about ourselves. And this is interesting. Um, ben McBride has a book coming out eventually. I can't say anything about it huh. other than the fact that he gets at this. And he's he's such a, a beautiful writer and an extraordinary leader that he talks about this form of bridging. And all I can say is get, just get his book when it comes out. It won't be out. It's probably later in the mm. year. But he, he really reminds me to try and see and to hear and to listen. And I think that that's that's the moment we're in. It's very easy. It is very easy to be angry and to shut down and to just understand that that you know we feel that we're right because we are often, but the the issue is kind of how are we going to build this how are we going to build this future and by listening and giving people space to communicate instead of just waiting for your turn to talk. And this is, I think Thanksgiving tables are going to be really interesting this year because people are going to be sitting with folks with whom they do not agree on fundamental things, I'm guessing. And, And how are we going to treat that moment? And are we going to take advantage of it and use it or not? And it'll be right after the election and heaven knows what's going to happen. But so, you know, we're, I do think we have to move into that into that way or else we're just going to be stuck in the same old ruts and these ruts are not helping. Well, it's funny, you know, we've talked about um, maybe thinking of foundations as media nodes, you know, output nodes for communications and media and just information. But you're making me think that we think of our whole nonprofit uh, fabric as a tapestry of listeners, you know, as, as, as yeah. these binding agents for community you know, that can pull people in and draw people together and be very intentionally inclusive in that process so that people have a chance to do what you're talking about. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool idea. Um, And and getting back to Thaler, I mean, she just does this so well and it's, it's fun to learn from her. And, uh, well, oh, by the way, uh, I did not ask her on the air, but I, I know this from previous conversations that she is not related to Harvey Picar, okay. <laughs> who Paul Giamatti played in a movie, Harvey Picar, the famous um, uh, comic, what do you call it? Um, graphic novelist. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> I was like, how many Picars could there be? But nope, she's not related to Harvey She's Picard. purely gifted. She's clearly gifted in her work. And so that brings me to the, I can't let you get out of here. We'll end on this, but um, without answering this question. So what do you think about this process of foundations systematically opening themselves to something like this. And, you know, the, the thing that was striking me as she was kind of reflecting on her experience and just the diversity of voices that came forward with Atlantic Philanthropies, that willingness to be real, both authentic about the experience and all the people that have contributed to it within the foundation landscape, but also to look at the warts and all part of it, right? And, and, as, and as you pointed out in the interview, you know, foundations are good for 
talking about their successes, but it's harder to talk about air quotes, the learning part of it, you know, in terms of what doesn't go quite <laughs> as, as well. There's always a site on every, on every foundation website, what we're learning. And, and sometimes yeah. what we're learning is we're just fabulous. We, exactly. We exactly. Our processes, our processes and integrity just keep getting better and better. But so, so what do you think about foundations? Uh, kind of, you know, saying, Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to be systematic about it. What would be your thought about that? We're definitely seeing, we're seeing foundations now kind of calling themselves to account for really addressing this, this issue right now of, of racial equality, of anti-racism. And the trick will be to call yourself to account really and truly. Not mm. to say what you're already doing, but what you're going to now do. And what did you? What are you learning? And what are you going to do differently? And I, I think that that's always a a value that foundations and an approach that foundations should should take. And now more than ever, it's it's essential. Um, I think on another day, maybe we'll have a guest talking about this. But uh, I, I'm now firmly committed that most foundations should spend themselves down and out over a reasonable period of time. Wow. It was a very interesting. I don't know if you saw that Ford and Kellogg and a few others have uh, committed to selling bonds so that they can increase their payout. Wow. But, so this is a topic for another day. Wow. But this, uh, this notion about foundations doing something truly bold is an imperative right now. If not now, I mean when. when. Yeah, yeah. Well, can't wait for that episode. It's going to be good. This one was outstanding. Uh, Thaler Prakar, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Hear It. My goodness. So generous with your time, thalipicard.com. Please uh, go check those guys out, see how they work. And Eric, once again, you've brought us a real gem. So so thank you. Thanks for, for doing this for Let's Hear It. Thanks, Kirk. Well, we'll see you next time. Let's hear it. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. <laughs>